The following lecture was delivered at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Yael Trush now presents her lecture, The Jewish Art of Happiness. Before I get started, um, I would love to get acquainted with my audience. So let's do this. Raise your hand if you've ever been in a negative mood, in a slump. Oh, people are shy. Yeah, yeah, I'm joining you there. Grappled with painful situations. Little things throughout your day take a bite out of your positivity and good mood. You don't always feel happy. Uh, come on, am I the only one here? <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, we can be friends. That was a warm welcome. Actually, you should know that I am from one of the warmest and happiest places in the world. Not Disney World. Puerto Rico. I grew up in Puerto Rico and... Believe it or not, for many years, Puerto Rico ranked as one of the happiest places in the world. Yeah, and I actually, I'm, I, I, I am a happy, like, I have a happy disposition. I'm a positive person, generally upbeat. But I do recall a time in my life when I came to ask myself, am I happy? And you know what that means, right? Am I happy is the question that a happy person never asks. I had moved to go to college in Boston and then to Manhattan to work in Wall Street as an investment banker and get my MBA. Anybody here working on Wall Street? No Wall Street people? Great, because I'm about to tell you that Wall Street is not a very happy place. Don't tell anybody. Uh, <laughs> but thankfully, at around the same time, I met Chabad. And what's the first thing that we notice about Chabad? They're always happy, right? Dennis Prager has a joke, I don't know if you've heard him, but he says, in the rare instance that a Chabad rabbi isn't happy, headquarters from New York send somebody in the middle of the night, they pull him out of bed and they replace him with a new one. They're always happy. Yeah, have you ever been to Simchat Torah Chabad? Yeah, it puts Puerto Rican parties to shame, to the point that I said, we Puerto Ricans, we've got nothing on these guys. Chabad has got the happiness market cornered. I, I'm telling you, yeah, exactly. To the point that I said, it sparked a really, what I thought was a good idea for my entrepreneurship class in business school. I said, let's bottle their happiness, sell it, and make a profit. Obviously, it wasn't such a novel idea, and well, my startup wasn't going to work, but... I wasn't going to give up so easily. I was determined to find out what do these guys have, the happy ones, the Hasidim, that even I, Miss Jewish Latin Princess from Puerto Rico, from the happy island, didn't have. Did I tell you that I'm very competitive? Hmm. So I ate a lot of challah, a lot of gefilte fish, I don't even like gefilte fish, and a lot of matzo ball soup. And I asked a lot of questions. And what I discovered didn't have anything to do with happiness per se. What I discovered had to do with life, Jewish life. There's an expression in Hebrew that says, 
don't look for the way to happiness, but rather for the happiness along the way. And I believe that's what Judaism offers us, a framework through which we find the happiness that exists along the way. Let me explain. Although I have to be careful how I say this because we are in Washington, D.C., and I'm from Puerto Rico, complicated relationship, but here we go. With all due respect to the founding fathers of our country, we don't have to pursue happiness. Rather, Judaism is a way of life that teaches us to do certain things which will in turn make us happy. So today I want to share with you three Jewish lifestyle practices that are bound to make you just as happy as your Chabad Rabbi or Rebetzin, or maybe even more. I told you it was competitive. Okay, here we go. Express gratitude. Pretty simple. We're going to talk about it. Focus on your soul. And my favorite one, celebrate. So let's start by expressing gratitude. It's a hot, hot topic. All the happiness gurus talk about it. Tal Ben Shachar, Gretchen Rubin, they all talk about it. Because we live in a society where it's become increasingly difficult to be truly grateful, to really appreciate the good in our life. We're constantly opening our phones and looking at what all our friends have. Meanwhile, we don't know half of them. Yeah? You know, you know half of your social media friends? I don't. And we're looking at everybody else's perfect life. Everything is rosier and prettier by everybody else. And we're left with feelings of longing, inadequacy, sadness. So what are we supposed to do? Get off social media? Well, maybe. At least once a week. Shabbat. You know, we have a beautiful custom, Shabbat custom in our home. We call it the good thing of the week. And here's, here's how it goes. You're welcome to adopt it if you like it. It's like this. We go around the table, and everybody has to share something good that happened that week. So we have guests who've been to our home several times. They're familiar with this custom. But we often have one or a few new guests, and inevitably, somebody will admit, boy, this is hard. And I know, it's hard at the beginning. We have what psychologists have, this negativity bias. It's easier to remember the negative than the positive. It's easier to fetch about what happened that week. But when put on the spot and asked, but wait, 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 tell me something great. Tell me something. What's the most awesome thing that happened this week? Uh, well, one minute. Um, I'm not sure. Which is exactly why we do it. To train our mind to train ourselves to appreciate the good that happened that week. And the truth is, there's more than one thing to be grateful for in a week. There's a million things to be grateful for in a week. We just have to focus on them. Now, I'll tell you, I might be a pro at the good thing of the week thing going on in our home on Shabbat, but gratitude? I don't, know. I don't think it was always my forte. Nope. I'll tell you, I'm an only child, <laughs> which means that... Um, Excuse me if there's other only children, but I'm only speaking for myself. In my younger years, you could have best described me as spoiled, yeah, a little bit entitled, pretty accurate. And if I was having a miserable time at work or in graduate school, I had no problem going out for a, quite the damaging dose of retail therapy. Mm, yeah, 
well, actually, if I ever left my office. You understand, it was Wall Street, so workaholic, shopaholic, it's a terrible combination. But never mind, because I'm cured by now. I left Wall Street a very long time ago, and as far as shopping, I will never step foot into a shopping mall ever again in my life. Now I only shop online, which my husband seems to remind me all the time. Uh, there's a few boxes on our front step. <laughs> Perhaps they're the neighbors. <laughs> I, <laughs> but workaholic, shopaholic, too busy to stop and appreciate the good in my life. And certainly too busy to say thank you. I learned a very powerful lesson years ago about expressing gratitude from a dear friend, Mrs. Katz, mother of Chabad Shlucha to Puerto Rico. I must have been complaining and acting all miserable about something. Poor me. And she said to me, Yael, do you know why we say modim during the repetition of the Shmone Esre? What? I'll tell you what she was talking about. When the, during, the, during the prayer service, when the cantor repeats the Amidah, the silent prayer that we just said, we listen, but there's a point in the prayer which begins with the, words, the word modim, where we acknowledge with gratitude to Hashem, to God. And she's asking me, how come we have to say it? Isn't he repeating it? So I said, I don't know. I mean, I never gave it much thought. She says, because he can't say thank you for us. We have to say thank you. What a lesson. He can say everything else, but when it comes to gratitude, with saying, saying thank you, that we have to do. And isn't that something we notice about our dear friends, the Hasidim, the happy ones, the way they greet everybody, ever noticed? Thank God, Baruch Hashem, Rabbi, how are you? Thank God, how are you? It's, it's unbelievable. Doesn't matter who we're talking to, Jews, non-Jews, and I say we. You notice that? Because I do it too. Now I do it too. The bank, the airport this morning, the checkout line. Thank God, and how are you? It lifts you up, and it makes you happy. And guess what? You uplift the other person, and you make them happy too. You should try it. It's magical. It really is. People are, you get a smile, you get a nice chuckle sometimes. People are pleasantly surprised. So no matter what's happening in your day, just say it. Thank God. You know the Hebrew word for Jews? Yehudim. From the word hoda'ah, gratitude. You know what that means? We are the grateful ones. Expressing gratitude is embedded into our everyday a Jewish person says about a hundred blessings a day, thanking God for the food we eat, thanking God for the ability to see and differentiate between the good and the not good, thanking God that our bodies function optimally, thanking God. In fact, from the moment we wake up, how do we wake up? We say, Modeani. We thank God for our soul, the most basic, giving us back our soul so that we can go out and do stuff. Which means that you should stay away from your phone when you were first wake up. Buy yourself a $20 alarm clock. They still exist, you know. I, I know, because I had to buy myself a, a new one. I can send you the link if you want. Otherwise, you know what's gonna happen? You know what's gonna happen to your gratitude? I'll tell you. WhatsApp, Instagram, yeah? There went your gratitude, and probably your happiness too. 
So say thank you and say it like you mean it. The second thing that Judaism teaches us to do is to focus on our soul. We just talked about this first expression of gratitude. The minute we wake up, those first few moments of consciousness, we thank God for our soul. Let's look at this a little bit in depth because it's so profound. We say, Mode ani lefanecha, melechai vekayam, shechesarta binishmati, bechemla raba emunasecha. I offer thanks to to the king, to keep, to the king, to you, the living and eternal king, for mercifully restoring my soul back within me. Your faithfulness is great. Do you hear that? Your faithfulness is great. One minute. Me, with all my imperfections, my handicaps, my meshugas, you, God, have faith in me? Well, if that doesn't wake you, get you up out of bed with a smile, I don't know what will. And yet, you say, well, I'm not going to smile until I've had my first cup of coffee. Yeah, I used to do that. I stopped drinking coffee. Gone. Three years. I'm so proud of myself. I wanted to make myself smile the natural way. My husband says it doesn't work. I should go back to the coffee. Keep your coffee. It's all good. No problem with the coffee. Enough that I told you to get off social media. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you to get off coffee. Just smile. Smile because you have a soul that God sent here on a mission. Just smile. And yet we can go throughout our entire day. We can get engrossed in our day without giving one ounce of attention to that soul that we just received anew. It's unbelievable. Do you want to know what's the extent of the attention that I gave my soul before I adopted this new way of life? I'll tell you. It's called soul cycle. You're familiar with soul cycle? It's spinning class on steroids. Dark room, um, bicycle, stationary bike, loud music. Oh, but I did it three times a week. Ah, soul cycle. Despite what the name suggests, Soul cycle has nothing to do with your soul. In order to be happy, you have to do a little bit more than soul cycle three times a week. You actually have to pay attention to another part of yourself. Not just your body, but your soul. That soul that Judaism teaches us is divine. It's a piece of God. The prophet Eev told us, it's a chelek elokam mimal a piece of God above. And the Alta Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, teaches us in his holy book of Tanya, it's a chelek elokam mimal mamash, a piece of God above, literally, literally a piece of God. And he goes on to explain that this is our real identity. This is who we are. Not a body with a soul. We're a soul with a body. This is who we are. So, in order to do so, well, let me actually first, before I tell you how Judaism helps us here, I want to share a little story. It's a well-known story, very powerful story, about a student of Freudian psychology who came to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he asked him, he shared with the Rebbe that he had been learning this idea that we just discussed, that the soul is divine and it's pure, it's a piece of God. And he said to the Rebbe, but Freud talks about the id, And this id 
it's, there's a lot of cuckoo stuff going on in there. It's not so pretty. So which one is it? Is it the way Freud describes it? Is it the way Judaism describes it? What, what am I missing here, Rebbe? So the Rebbe gave him a brilliant answer. The Rebbe said, sure, if you dig within a person, perhaps you're going to find some stuff, maybe a little schmutz. It's like when you're digging the earth, you go through layer upon layer of mud, more mud and more mud. But if you dig deep enough, what will you uncover? Diamonds. He said, Freud found the id. But had he dug a little deeper, he would have found the yid. We have to find the yid. We have to focus on that pure divine soul of ours. And in order to do so, Judaism gives us plenty of opportunities throughout our day to focus on our soul. Have you ever noticed how Judaism seems to slow you down? I mean, maybe it's just me, but it took me a while to get used to this. It's like, can we get going already? I'm exhausted. I've had such a long day at work. Can, I just need to crash. Oh, wait, wait. Shema. I'm starving. Where's the food already? Oh, one minute, one minute. Is it, is it fit for my body and my soul? Is it kosher? And what about that? Oh, wait, I have to say a blessing. Baruch. Now I have to rush to my meeting, but I, I have to bench. I ha- I'm grateful. I have to be grateful. And what about that all-consuming project at work 24-7? The due date is coming up. Sorry, Shabbat. New client, new payment came in, Nordstrom's annual sale. Whoa, 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 one minute. Not all of the money goes to Nordstrom's. 10% of that money isn't even yours, it's God's. There's families in need and community institutions depending on that money. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's going on here? Judaism slows us down so that we can focus on our soul on the needs of that soul. Because if we don't, well, I hate to break it to you, but we're probably not going to be very happy. Focus on your soul. The third thing that Judaism teaches us to do, and quite often too, is to celebrate. Talking about slowing down, have you noticed how often we have a holiday? I mean, I feel like I'm getting ready for another holiday every two weeks. It's like, I love a good party. Don't get me wrong. I'm Puerto Rican, but come on. What is this? God, you want to check with my electronic calendar maybe? I mean, it's, you know, it's quite full if you haven't noticed. Mm. Nope. Got to celebrate. Go get ready, my dear. Oh, huh. pretty good. You know, there's a mitzvah, we have to rejoice in the festivals. You know what the Gemara says about that? The Talmud? Ha, this is great. You need to get yourself new jewelry and new clothing. How about that? Isn't that great? That's what's going to make us happy. That, <laughs> tell your husband, exactly. That's what's going to put us in a festive mood. And by the way, your husband tells you it's too expensive? Let me tell you something. There's nothing more expensive than a sad wife. You tell him. You tell him you learned it in the National Jewish Retreat. <laughs> Happiness session. Rosh Hashanah is coming. <laughs> the husbands are going to come after me. No. <laughs> That's why I brought my bodyguard, my husband. <laughs> so so we, we, have, we have all these 
immense amount of celebration. I don't think I understood. I don't think I grasped the extent of the celebration in Judaism when I was younger. No idea. You know, when I was 18 years old, I went to study at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Beautiful place, Mount Scopus. I don't know how much studying I, done, I did. Oh, yeah, you've been there? You went there? Beautiful. So I don't know how much studying I got done because, yeah, you either, we can relate. <laughs> um, when you're 18, there's a lot of partying going on in Israel. But one morning, I actually made it to class, half asleep, but I did it. I made it to class. I remember that. And to my surprise, we had a guest speaker. And you know what that means, right? You get to keep your dark sunglasses on, you pretend you're listening, and you take a nap. Don't get any ideas. So this guest speaker, she was a beautiful woman, elegant, eloquent, cheerful. She was a Holocaust survivor. And I can't tell you anything that she said. I don't recall about her experience. The one thing that I remember is when she started to talk about this grand celebration that she goes to every week. I woke up. She says every week she gets together with her family and they're dressed in their finest and they look so beautiful and everything is set and put to, everything is, looks so beautiful, the table and the food is delicious and they spend time together on the wine and they chat and they celebrate life. She said, a grand celebration every single week, Shabbat. I said, what? Where do I sign up? It took me a number of years to get with the program, but my curiosity was definitely piqued. Think about this for a minute. The luxury. And I don't just mean the fine food and the flowers and the wine and the china. The luxury. Saying no to the grind of the week. Saying no to the demands of your boss, your clients, your investor, investors. No, sorry, can't do it. Got a celebration to go to. And then I'll read my kids a book. And I'm going to take my wife for a walk. And I might even take a nap. Who does that? Who has such luxuries? Who does that? The royals? Maybe. Well, I guess we're royalty. Because we do it. Judaism affords us the opportunity, the luxury, to be like royalty every single week. And I don't know about you, but that's something I can get on board with. They don't call me the Jewish Latin princess for nothing. Shabbat, festivals. If that wasn't enough, we've got more for you people. Every mitzvah that we do is a celebration. And we got 613 of them. You know what we're celebrating? This is the real deal. Forget the happy hours, the parties, the clubs. The real deal. We're celebrating that we have a soul that is a part of God. That God sent us to the world in a mission, with a mission. And that we finite beings have a relationship with the infinite creator. Which is why your Jewish birthday is so important. 
the Hebrew date of your birth is the day that God sent your soul into your body to do something special that only you can do. It's the day that God said, you matter. I need you. And isn't that cause for celebration? So if you don't know your Hebrew birthday yet, after we finish, please go look it up on Chabad.org. They have a Hebrew birthday calculator. And mark it on your calendar. Mark it so that you can celebrate it. Invite friends and family. Say a little l'chaim. Share something inspiring that you learned here in the retreat. Make a resolution for the new year, for the year that you have coming ahead of you. Give a little tzedakah charity in honor of your special day. You want to celebrate your English birthday? Sure, go ahead. But don't forget to celebrate the day that God handpicked your soul. Celebrate often and celebrate for the right reasons, and you'll be pretty happy. I want to share with you a story to conclude. It's a true story that I heard from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs about an, a masterpiece, a lost piece of ark amidst the clutter in an eccentric man's estate. This man's name was Mr. Ernst Onyang. Mr. Onyan had spent most of the 1940s and 50s roaming through estate sales in the English countryside, amassing a vast collection. Over the years, his personality evolved from that of passionate collector to paranoid hoarder. He first filled his entire farm to the brim with his finds, and then he built shacks to store everything, his finds, his antiquities, artwork, artifacts, everything. When he passed away, oh, not only that, he became so paranoid that he wouldn't insure his collection for fear that anybody would see what he owned. He even slept with a loaded gun under his bed. So when this man passed away, unfortunately, his estranged family, who had been estranged from him for a number of years, didn't want to have anything to do with the estate. So they handed it off to Sotheby's to liquidate. So soon after art collectors and dealers received a catalog for an upcoming auction, including some of the finds that some of the things Sotheby's had found in this eclectic collection of Mr. Onyan. One of these collectors was the renowned, the eminent Sir Dennis Maon, a very renowned collector and art dealer. As he was browsing through the catalog, he noticed a small picture of a painting listed as the Sack of Carthage from a relatively unknown 17th century artist, listed for 15,000 British pounds. Now, Sir Dennis noticed an incongruous detail in this little picture that was not much bigger than the size of a stamp. He noticed a seven-branched menorah. He said immediately, this can't be the sack of Carthage. This has to be the destruction of the Jews' second temple by the Romans. There had been a very well-known 17th century painter, Nicolas Poussin, and Poussin had painted two portraits of the destruction of the second temple. One sat in the museum in Vienna, and the other one had been lost since the 18th century. Sir Dennis realized that unbeknownst to Sotheby's, he was looking at the long-lost Poussin, 
So the day of the auction arrived, and Sir Dennis placed a bid on the painting. Others, thinking he must know something that we don't know, they also bid. Eventually, Sir Dennis bought the painting for 155,000 pounds. He then sold it to Lord Rothschild for its true value, 4.5 million pounds. Lord Rothschild, in turn, donated the painting to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, where you can see it today. Over those many nights at Chabad houses, eating challah, gefilte fish, and matzah soup, I stopped asking myself, am I happy? And I began asking myself questions that we should all ask. Is my Judaism, like Mr. Onyan's collection, just a bunch of antiquated stuff? Is it something that my parents or grandparents valued, but of no value of, or meaning to me? Am I or my children to be like Onyan's children, willing to let go of a masterpiece of immense value? Will my children one day blame me, or perhaps even pity me, for not having taught them the value of the masterpiece bequeathed to them? I realized that the happiness, the happy ones, did not pursue happiness. They weren't trying to catch it in a New York minute, running to the next meeting like perhaps I was. Instead, they had embraced that masterpiece that is given to each and every one of us at birth. I discovered that there is a Jewish art to happiness. It's in that gift, that masterpiece, Judaism, a way of life which allows us to experience happiness by giving us plenty of opportunities to express gratitude, to focus on our souls, and to celebrate. Try it, and you might find that you too are one of the happy ones. We have a question, hold on, yeah. Okay, so she just asked if we could speak a little bit about the place of emunah in, in, in the theme of happiness and how Hashem has a role in our lives. And that is, in fact, one of the key components, and we could have done an entire class just on that, my husband will tell you that we, I debated this many times. More than emuna, it's a concept called ashkaha pratit, divine providence. And that is a fundamental Hasidic belief. It's a fundamental Jewish belief, period. But the Baal Shem Tov definitely reintroduced it with a lot of vibrancy. And it basically is the belief that everything that is happening to us, it's by the hand of God. Nothing is coincidence. Nothing that we're experiencing in our life is coincidental. Everything has a purpose. And therefore, how does this connect to happiness? Because when we have this as a guiding principle, then we could be calm and confident knowing that everything that is happening in our lives is part of a plan. We know that God is good, so everything somehow has to fit into the bigger picture. We might not always see it, but it definitely is a key ingredient to happiness when we know that we are connecting to God on every level because there's there's divine providence in everything that is happening. So thank you. Excellent point. Did that answer your question? Yes, in the back, sir. Right, and you're right on point. What you're saying, did everybody catch him? You want me to try to... 
Um, basically, what he's saying is there is this idea that people teach their children or people want their children to always be happy. So he finds this, it's conflicting because he really, what he believes is that he wants his children to be good, to serve God, to go, do good de- deeds. And happiness, it's, it's, a, it's not really the main focus. And I 100% agree with you. And that is what I, part of what I was trying to say. The happiness is something that happens on the side. What we're ne- really focusing on is on what you're saying, on serving Hashem. This is our mission, connecting with our creator, doing good, connecting to our creator. And the rest, it's going to come. So I 100% what he's saying is there is this notion that we try to make, our kids need to be happy. No, our kids don't need to be happy. Our kids need to understand their role in the world, their Jewish identity, what they're worth, their intrinsic value, and how to connect with their creator and how to serve the world with everything that they've been endowed with. And then, yes, when we raise them like that, they'll be happy. Another question? Yes. There you go. Beautiful. It's not happiness that makes us grateful. It's gratitude, gratefulness that makes us happy. Exactly. Yes. Any other questions or comments or stories? Okay, so now we can be really happy. And by the way, they're going to make sure that you're very happy here in the, Jewish, in the National Jewish Retreat. They're going to take care of all your physical needs, great accommodations, wonderful food, so you can focus on your soul and you can go back to your everyday life completely focused and you'll be really happy. Thank you so much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.